0: From Skadden, you're listening to The Informed Board, a podcast for directors facing the rapidly evolving challenges of a global market. A compliment to our newsletter for directors, our aim with this podcast is to help flag potential problems that may not be fully appreciated, explain trends, share our observations, and give directors practical guidance without a lot of legal jargon. Join Skadden partners who draw on years of frontline experience inside boardrooms to explore the complex issues facing directors today.
1: I'm Ann Beth Stebbins, a partner in Scadden's m a Group. I listen to a lot of podcasts. For me, it's a great way to absorb content on topical issues. We've created the Informed Board Podcast to keep you, our audience, in the know on what directors need to know about legal issues impacting board decision-making. Welcome to Episode 1 of the Informed Board. We've seen a real shift in Washington since President Biden took office. The policies advanced by the administration may come as no surprise, but one thing that feels different is the means that the administration is using to advance its objectives. In our polarized political climate, it's not so easy to get legislation passed that addresses the issues that were front and center in the election, like climate change, income inequality. Is the Biden administration using the rulemaking authority and review processes of regulatory agencies to advance its policy objectives, even in areas that seem outside the lane of those agencies' purview? What are the limits on an agency's rulemaking authority? Joining me today to talk about rulemaking activity in Washington are Maria a partner in Skadden's antitrust practice, and Raquel Fox, a partner in Skadden's SEC practice. Welcome, Maria. Welcome, Raquel. Thanks for having us, and Beth. So, Maria, let's, let's kick off with you. First of all, just ground us a little bit and how antitrust is regulated in the U.S. You know, We have two agencies. What are their mandates? Let's just set the table here. Sure. So this is going to be
2: antitrust 101 in 30 seconds. But the U.S. antitrust laws, broadly speaking, Aim to police efforts by companies to reduce competition or create or maintain dominant positions or monopolies. And there's really three principal federal statutes at play. The first one is the Sherman Antitrust Act uh, passed in 1890. And, And that was really in large part a response to concerns about the harmful effects of large new concentrations of economic wealth. And enforcement was within the purview of the DOJ. And up until today, we have the Antitrust Division of the Department of Justice as half of the picture for federal antitrust regulation. And while the Sherman Act is a powerful weapon today, initially its enforcement was viewed as pretty insufficient uh, by critics. And they called for more focused antitrust legislation. And then we got two more laws in 1914, the Federal Trade Commission Act and the Clayton Act. Um, the FTC Act really created the Federal Trade Commission. It bans unfair methods of competition. This is a, an oversimplification, but you can think about it as coterminous with the Sherman Act. The FTC is an administrative body is headed up by a commission. So whereas in the antitrust division, You have decision-making authority emanating from the assistant AG. At the FTC, there's a five-member commission that acts by majority. The Clayton Act addressed some specific practices, such as mergers, which I think is, is a large part of what we'll be talking about today. And both the FTC and DOJ are authorized to enforce the Clayton Act. So in sum, we have two agencies. Their authorities overlap but they also complement each other. And over the years, each agency has developed expertise in particular industries.
1: And so DOJ, their mandate, or at least from this, the legislation that created their authority in, in this area, was concentration of wealth. And FTC was more consumer focused. Is that if you have to think about the two agencies and you know, what their original mandates were? I think that's a fair
2: characterization that the Sherman Act sort of started it all and and the FTC Act was meant to be more consumer focused. And and therefore you have not just the Bureau of Competition, which within the FTC, but also consumer protection.
1: How has the agency's focus changed in this administration? You know, thinking back to their origins, thinking back to past administrations and, and how they behaved. What's different in this administration? So I would say that the focus has
2: broadened. Uh, The Biden administration has appointed so-called progressives to head up the FTC and the DOJ. You may have heard them referred to as neo-Brandeisians, and that's because... What does that mean? It's really because Justice Brandeis was an original proponent of the Clayton Act. He was a proponent of the Clayton Act because at the time, he and others felt that the Sherman Act did not have enough bite. And it was really an effort to create more specialized antitrust uh, statutes to curb practices such as mergers that could lead to those concentrations of wealth. So what the progressives say is they want to go back to sort of that original intent of the 1914 statutes, which was to strengthen antitrust enforcement. And that's why they call themselves neo-Brandesians.
1: And strengthen beyond consumer protection. Or strengthen beyond concentration of wealth?
2: Well, they say two things. Antitrust enforcement and merger enforcement in particular has been too lax, and it's led to too much consolidation, meaning too much power in the hands of large companies to the detriment of not just competition, but small business and labor. Their number one example is big tech, but certainly that's not the only focus. But they favor more enforcement but not just more enforcement, and this gets to your question. They favor a broader lens through which to view competition. So for about 50 years, competition has been about consumer welfare, which has largely been measured by prices and output and quality. So if a merger was going to lead to higher prices, that was bad. This new uh, slate of regulators says it's not just about prices. It's about preserving the competitive process, And how market power can harm workers, not just consumers, but workers, suppliers, small businesses, even if the merger passes the consumer welfare or the price test. You need to look more broadly at the harms and the impacts that have been created by these concentrations of power. So, for example, they want to look at how a merger affects employees. Does it give the combined companies some sort of power over labor. And they look at, you know, what are the non-compete policies of these companies?
1: So tying that back into my original question of the Biden administration using rulemaking authority to advance policy objectives, this seems to me to tie into income inequality, using antitrust laws and the interpretation of those laws to help the little guy. Is, is that how you're thinking about it? I think that's exactly right.
2: The chairwoman of the Federal Trade Commission, Lena Kahn, wrote an article, a law review article many years back called the Amazon Antitrust Paradox. And her theory is, even though Amazon can offer great services and lower prices to consumers, their dominance and their size really allows them to squeeze out small businesses. And ultimately, that's going to be bad for everyone.
1: Even though consumers might have lower prices now because of the efficiencies of Amazon and consumers might be happy with Amazon because of the convenience of Amazon, she's thinking of effects beyond consumers, the effects on small business, the effects on suppliers who get squeezed out and has defined those constituencies as being part of the mandate of the agency. That's right.
2: And also labor. That's, I think, the the one important one to keep in mind is how does combining companies impact employees' ability to move around between jobs, negotiate for better benefits, negotiate for higher salary? That's a big focus.
1: So are you seeing the agencies turn down mergers or challenge mergers on those bases, on some of these new theories or new areas of concern?
2: No, not yet. I think that that they're asking the questions right now. But you have to remember that the FTC and DOJ, and this is pretty unique in sort of the world schema, the FTC and DOJ, in order to actually challenge a merger, have to go to court and win in court for the most part, I mean, they can try to negotiate a settlement with the parties, but ultimately they have to go to court. And there is a very long-standing body of precedent that doesn't take these things into account, that's more focused on the consumer welfare test. And they would have to overturn decades of precedent in order to successfully challenge a merger on these grounds. So
1: it hasn't happened yet. Or have Congress actually enact legislation. That's Right. So there are limits on their rulemaking authority. They can ask the questions, but ultimately, if they challenge a merger on these grounds, it's going to go to court and think judicial system would respect precedents of of 50 years. Is that the prediction here, if we were to think about how all of this rhetoric plays out?
2: Yes, as we know, courts move very slowly in changing. I I think that the smart money is on... We're not going to have a sea change in antitrust law anytime soon, unless, as you point out, and we can talk more about this later, there's legislation passed and there has been legislation proposed to change the legal standard and make it easier for the agencies to challenge mergers. But unless that happens, the FTC and DOJ have a pretty tough road ahead of them to try to challenge mergers on this basis.
1: So, Maria, recently a fifth FTC commissioner was approved. And until this commissioner was approved, the commission had been operating with four commissioners, two Democrats and two Republicans. So I presume there were deadlocks that made it more difficult for the the FTC to act. Is that right? That's fair. Originally,
2: Bedoya was nominated back in September of last year, and he was held up at committee with a tie vote at the end of the year so he had to be renominated in January. The Senate voted to confirm him but the vote was 51 to 50. It required Vice President Kamala Harris to break the tie. And the reason Republicans cited for some of that opposition is that the FTC became too politicized in this in the past few months and that Badoya's views tend to be divisive and they would have preferred someone who could drive more consensus, which By the way, is a tall order, um, the current commission is probably the most openly hostile and and critical of one another that uh, certainly I've seen in my career. But the final approval of Bedoya gives Khan the 3-2 Democratic majority that she needs to override some of the Republican opposition to this ambitious set of goals and pursue a more aggressive agenda, which could lead to the FTC bringing more merger challenges and challenges that are based on more novel theories. There's also some discussion around the ability of the FTC to use its rulemaking authority to drive change. Very controversial, but the commission does have the ability to use trade regulation rules to address practices that occur commonly in an industry. And that's pretty fraught. There's a lot of procedural obligations around it. Commissioner Kahn has voiced a preference to be able to simplify that and use it more, use that rulemaking authority more. We'll probably see efforts to do that now that Bedoya has been approved.
1: So that's using rulemaking authority to eliminate some of the procedural hurdles. And that seems to be within their purview, right? You wouldn't need to get court approval to do that. You wouldn't need legislation passed to do that. So we may see some some movement in that area.
2: That's right. I think they will try to pursue changes to rules. The problem, of course, is that regulations are always challenged and those challenges take a long time to settle out. And so again, I think the goals and the agenda are very ambitious, but there are obstacles to actually accomplishing those goals.
1: So Raquel, this is a great segue to you. Maria was talking about the political divide among the commissioners at the FTC, which you know now may become more pronounced that we have a third Democratic commissioner. The SEC is also set up as a commission. Talk about the political climate at the SEC, um, and if you are seeing the same thing at the SEC that Maria is seeing at the
3: FTC and DOJ. The SEC is an independent body. It's an independent agency. But I'd say there's some serious question marks uh, around that because, of course, the commissioners are appointed by the president and there's oversight by Congress, as well as a lot of coordination with Treasury. So Congress controls the purse strings of the SEC. We, We used to kind of think of them as the board of directors for for the SEC, because of course, they have oversight hearings where they ask the SEC what they've been doing and question their oversight, as well as they control the budget. So they control the purse strings of the SEC. So for example, the SEC put in its most recent budget and they talked about their key priority areas, which were IPOs, um, special purpose acquisition companies, as well as crypto and using more data analytics. One thing that was interesting about their request is they said that they expect that more cases are going to be litigated, and that's why they need more money and more people. And outgrowth of that is just recently, the SEC announced that it was doubling its cyber unit, which when you hear cyber unit, you think of cybersecurity, but it's way more than that. That also entails digital assets. So. Yes, the SEC did, does not uh, shy away from um, issues recently that people may say are are more political, which I'm guessing we'll we'll talk about that a little bit later. Well, what about the
1: topics that the SEC has been taking on? I mean, there's been a lot recently about rulemaking in areas that are not traditional areas for the SEC. And I know you're going to tell me the SEC is a disclosure agency, so they can't force registered companies to behave in a certain way, but they can certainly force disclosure about how a public company is behaving. So so talk about some of the topics, Raquel, that the SEC has taken on recently.
3: The SEC under Gensler does have a very aggressive rulemaking, rule-making agenda. And one difference is this is the first time in probably a long time that the SEC doesn't have a lot of mandated rules from Congress. So it can really sit back and think about what are some of the rules that we want to enact as opposed to we have lots of Dodd-Frank rules or JOBS Act. So normally when the SEC engages in rulemaking, it's
1: because the legislature has passed legislation and then says SEC come up with rules to implement this legislation. Is that more the
3: historical way of doing things? In more recent years, uh, the SEC has had so much rulemaking from Congress that they haven't had uh, the resources to do anything else. Think about the financial crisis and the Dodd-Frank Act and all the rulemaking that came out of that. They probably had 70 or so mandated rules. So once you have the mandated rules with specific timelines, it makes it hard to say we have this drawer of things that we've been wanting to do. So now they have the time, the resources to dust the things off out of the drawer that they've been wanting to do probably for four years. So this stuff they've wanted to do,
1: or is there some influence from the administration saying, these are our policy objectives. Can you use your rulemaking authority to help us advance these policy objectives? Or are these things that the SEC really
3: did have in their drawer and just hadn't gotten around to them? I would say it's both. So when you think about rules about share repurchase or 10 b 51 plans or proxy rules, those are things that the SEC has been wanting to do, at least the topics. I'm not saying the exact way that... And those are in the lane. Those are what you think about. Those are things you think that the SEC should be doing, right? Exactly. When President Biden rolled out his agenda, one of his priorities is climate. And that is something that is on the SEC's radar, too, as well as Congress. So the SEC put out a very extensive climate proposal a few weeks ago. It was very detailed, very prescriptive. And when the SEC in the past has done what I would people have called specialized disclosures, for example, um, resource extraction, which is a rule you wouldn't think of the SEC as as normally doing, that was mandated by Congress through the Dodd Frank Act. So this is the first really specialized disclosure that I would say that hasn't been mandated through legislation.
1: So does the SEC have the authority to require disclosure on climate? It hasn't been mandated by the legislature. What,
3: how far can they go? So the SEC has a mission, of course, the tripart mission that, that we always hear about. And one interesting thing was the, the lone uh, dissent on this rule, the Republican Commissioner Hester Peirce, the title of her dissent was, we're not the Securities and Climate Commission, at least she said, at least not yet. So I would expect that this rule will be challenged. And I would say some of the grounds that it may be challenged on are, does it fit within the SEC's mission? Did they go beyond the, the scope of their authority? Is the rule arbitrary and capricious, which those are key terms that, that the court will look at? The other thing I would say is people are saying, "Is it compel speech?" I'll leave that to our constitutional scholars to, to um, weigh in on that. But the thing that I'm probably most focused on, and what we used to focus on when I was at the SCC, is do the does the cost of this do the benefits of this rule and the cost are they aligned? So does do the cost of the rule outweigh outweigh the benefits? And we spent a lot of time when I was at the SCC. Um, really digging into the economic analysis to make sure that it's sound. And with this climate rule, people are saying it's going to cost companies, um, big and small, a lot of money because it's going to require them to have, um, audit, to have this information to be audited. Um, in some instances, to go out and find another independent person to provide assurance. All of those things add up and and cost money, as well as just trying to get your climate disclosures together and measure your greenhouse gas. So I think that that is one area that proponents will weigh in on. And going back to the
1: SEC's mission, just like we were talking to Maria, like what was the original mandate of these agencies? The SEC has a tripartite mission, as you mentioned. Investor protection is one of those pillars. And when the way I think about it, there's a difference between Investor protection and investor choice, or investor allocation, and investors might want this information. um, And I think that was an important part of the proposing release. Investors really want this information; they are demanding that companies disclose it. This is now bringing uniformity to those disclosures. But is it investor protection, or is it giving investors information they need to allocate and make investment decisions? And where is the line what is the sec's mandate investor protection or giving investors all the information they need to allocate their resources
3: there certainly is is probably a fine line what some people would say between the two and i guess some people would probably argue that investor protection is allowing them to have choice. So they have the information they feel like they need to know in order to, to choose their investments wisely. A part of this rule is, of course, climate-related risk. So it's asking companies to describe clearly what are their risks from climate change. So what are the transition risks? What are the physical risks? But the level of detail that that the rule is requiring um, for companies to the information that they're requiring not sure that that your average investor is looking for this level of detail. Some people are saying it may add, you know, 20, 30 pages more to a 10K or, or annual report.
1: But is it relevant for a software company? And you're you're putting all these costs on a software company. They can't just check NA, not applicable, right? They they have to give the same
3: disclosures. Right. They're gonna have to provide their, their scope one and scope two disclosures. And and that's something that may be up for challenge. So all registered companies would have to give Scope 1 and Scope 2 disclosures, regardless of whether they're material or not, which the SEC's rules tend to be grounded in the Supreme Court's definition of materiality, and, and that's it. could be a question mark for certain parts of this rule.
1: So aside from climate, what areas do you see the SEC delving into in the future? Clearly, the antitrust agencies are very focused on labor and employment and small business. Do you see any rulemaking by the SEC for disclosure in those areas or advancing those objectives?
3: Yes. So one of the the rules that's on their agenda, which they haven't proposed a rule yet, is more disclosure on human capital management. So that's, of course, all about labor. They want will likely... Um, require more details about workforce turnover. How many part-time, full-time employees? How are you training your employees? Um, what is their compensation and benefits? So that's definitely an area that some people may say goes further than what the SEC has done has done in the past. How many pages of disclosure will that add? It, it's definitely not like climate, but I, I would say that that you may be able to do that in about a page.
1: But Maria, same question for you. What areas do you see the antitrust agencies maybe dipping their toe into, particularly the FTC with a third Democratic commissioner? Anything beyond labor, employment, small business where where you see they might be heading? I think that the main focus of uh,
2: Congress and the FTC is on these platforms. So it's not necessarily uh, thematic, but rather industry focused big tech, basically, companies like Google, Apple, Facebook, Amazon, and maybe doing some targeted rulemaking or even legislation to curb the influence and power of these four companies or other large tech firms that have, you know, platform-based business.
1: How do you view the prospects for
2: legislation? So earlier in this administration, there were... Many, many bills being proposed by both Democrats and Republicans. And there was at least a perception of a swell of bipartisan support for antitrust reform in some form, even on a large scale, potentially. And the bills ran the spectrum from changing the legal standard to make it easier for the agencies to challenge deals, to banning mergers of a certain size or even banning all mergers, increasing funding for the agencies. And then more targeted uh, legislation that would pertain to big tech platforms, um, the companies I mentioned. I think that what's happened is that Republican support for some of this has waned. And there's a sense that maybe it's going too far. And and we saw that really with the opposition to Bedoya. And then, you know, on top of that, there's all these other priorities. The Ukraine, ongoing COVID, of course, and even recently the leaked uh, draft opinion overturning Roe versus Wade, that's getting a lot of attention. And with the midterms coming up, I think the closer we get to the midterms and the more issues that are out there continuing to eclipse antitrust, the changes of something game-changing being passed would seem to be less and less. But there's always the possibility, I think, that something more targeted could make its way into other legislation. Again, I think the chances of sweeping antitrust reform the prospects of that don't look very good right now.
1: And how about on the, the SEC side? Any legislation you think is possible, probable in this administration that might affect the SEC's mandate um, and the scope of what
3: we're seeing from the SEC? So right now you have the president and both houses of Congress are all controlled by by the Democrats. I would say there's probably not a need for Congress to feel like they need to propose um, legislation in order for the SEC to to do certain things,
1: but giving them more money is one thing, and that's helpful
3: yeah that that's helpful, but I would say we should watch and see what happens with the with the midterm elections and if Congress shifts because if that happens, those purse strings that I mentioned earlier can have riders on them where the where the where Congress says, we'll give you the money, but guess what? You can't pass, you can't do certain things. So in the past, Congress's writer has said, you can't pass, for example, anything related to any disclosure rules related to political spending. So we'll have to watch and see if Congress imposes um, something like that, where maybe they say, we'll give you the money, but you can't um, proceed on climate rules. Interesting space to watch. Maria,
1: Raquel, thank you very much. I think this has been a great discussion and uh, look forward to continuing it.
2: Thanks for having us, Anne Beth. Really enjoyed it.
0: Thank you for joining us for today's episode of The Informed Board. If you like what you're hearing, be sure to subscribe in your favorite podcast app so you don't miss any future conversations. Additional information about Scadden can be found at scadden.com. The Informed Board is a podcast by Skadden, Arps, Slate, Marr, and Flom LLP and affiliates. This podcast is provided for educational and informational purposes only and is not intended and should not be construed as legal advice. This podcast is considered advertising under applicable state laws.